This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is your podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 125, entitled The John 118 Show, because this entire episode is going to deal with John chapter 1, verse 18, which is the final of the 18 verses that comprise the prologue of the Gospel of John. If you've been following the episodes of the podcast as of late, we've been going through the prologue of the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses, and specifically we've been looking at the passages that depict Jesus in terms of God's wisdom. Thus, we've been looking at what we would call wisdom Christology. Not that we would call it that, that's actually what it's been described by scholars for over a hundred years. So last we get to the end of the prologue, we get to verse 18. Now, John 1.18 if you aren't aware of this, is a passage that has a very important textual variant. And so you will have some translations, like the Christian Standard Bible, which says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So the Holman Christian Standard Bible has a textual variant that reads, The one and only Son. Other translations will have a textual variant that says the one and only God or the only begotten God, something like the New American Standard, which says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So you have this important textual variant in John 1.18. Does it say the unique Son or does it say the unique God? So in order to explain John 1.18 and in order to break it down in ways that are going to be helpful for our study, I think it's important to just classify it into three different parts. So I'll describe the first part as John 1.18a, which is the phrase, no one has ever seen God at any time. So that's John 1.18a. John 1.18b is going to be the part that talks about this unique son, or is it unique God, the one who is in the bosom of the Father. And of course, that phrase unique comes from the Greek adjective monoyenes, which we did a thorough study of two episodes ago. I encourage you to look at that in episode 123. And then John 118c, our third part, is the phrase he has explained him where the Son has explained the unseen God. So we have three parts, John 118a, John 118b, and John 118c. What does it mean that no one has ever seen God? Is Jesus the unique God, or is he the unique Son? And how does John 118 define God in Unitarian terms? What is the role of Jesus in the relationship between the Father and the Son? 
Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at John 1.18a, and I'm going to entitle this section, No One Has Seen God at Any Time. Since the prologue has recently mentioned Moses in verses 16 and 17, and Moses was one of the persons who sought to see God, but was only allowed to see God's back, there is likely an allusion to this account with the statement at the beginning of John 1.18, which says, no one has seen God at any time. I want to recall this particular passage from Exodus 33 starting in verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That's Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23, to where Moses desires to see God. He desires to look upon him with his own two eyes, but God is very clear that no one can see me and live. In fact, it's very clear in verse 20, no human can see me and live. It is impossible for human beings to look upon God directly and to live because God is so awesome and glorious. Now it's helpful to look at how the narrative of the fourth gospel unpacks the statement in John 1.18a that no one has ever seen God. As you will recall, the prologue serves as an introduction to the gospel of John. John chapter 3 and verse 13 records Jesus saying that no one has ever ascended into heaven, which means that no one has entered into God's presence in order to attain heavenly revelatory secrets. Of course, John 3.13 qualifies this statement by saying the exception to this rule is the Son of Man namely the authorized human being, who is Jesus. We also see this in our primary text, John 1.18, where Jesus is the one who reveals and explains the unseen God to us. That's very interesting. So what is it about those persons in the Old Testament who claim to have seen God? What would the author or authors of the fourth gospel have to say about those persons? It's very likely that the fourth gospel would respond by qualifying those particular encounters. Moses only saw a bush, or as we saw in our passage in Exodus 33, Moses only saw God's back. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 
was experiencing a prophetic vision when he saw Yahweh seated upon the throne. Or that people really only see an angel that represents God as an authorized messenger from heaven when they claim to see God. But the fourth gospel, from its perspective, it's very clear, no one has seen God ever. But what we can say for certain, when the prologue insists that no one has ever seen God, is that God is someone distinct from Jesus. The two, God and Jesus, are not collapsed into the same being. Why can I say this with some confidence? Answer, because later in John chapter 1, plenty of people do, in fact, see Jesus. So look in John 1, 29, where it says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him. John saw Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29. A few verses later, in verse 34, he says, quote, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 34. Two verses later, in verse 36, he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John 1, 36. A few verses later, Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. Namely, we have found Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 45. So it seems pretty clear that multiple persons saw with their own two eyes Jesus. And they called him the Son of God. They also called him the Lamb of God. People saw Jesus. But John 1.18 insists that no one has ever seen God. So, if no one has seen God and people saw Jesus, then the God that no one has seen is not the same person as Jesus. That seems to be very clear. John 1.18 is not collapsing God and Jesus together into the same being. And we should not miss the important point that John 1.18 actually defines God as the Father alone. And... It distinguishes the unseen God from Jesus. John 1.18 says that Jesus, as the unique one, whether it's the unique son or the unique God, we'll get to that here very soon, is in the bosom of the Father, and Jesus explains him. God there is defined as the Father. The unseen God is defined as the Father, and Jesus the unique one, is distinguished from God. He is distinguished from the unseen God because Jesus is the one that explains the Father, meaning Jesus is the one that explains the unseen God. John 1.18 defines the unseen God as the Father alone, which, by the way, is a very Unitarian thing to say. Jesus is distinct from the unseen God in the unseen God, according to John 1.18, is the Father alone. So that's enough about John 1.18a. Let's move along to John 1.18b. Our second point today is the monoyunis who is in the bosom of the Father. Now this section of John 1.18, which I've titled John 1.18b, 
is disputed on textual grounds. And I will admit that the nature of the evidence that's available for this particular discussion is one that will likely never be proven to some satisfaction of all parties with the original reading in any form of clarity. Since the evidence lends itself to a debate that is not definitive in its conclusion, I'm simply going to offer reasons why I think that the unique son is the likely original reading, rather than the unique God. But I'm admitting up front that the evidence is not altogether conclusive. The newly published Greek New Testament by Tyndale House, which was released only three years ago, actually puts the unique son in the main text of its Greek New Testament and suggests that the unique God reading is actually the variant reading. So it's interesting that a standard New Testament collection of Greek text is actually arguing that the unique son is the original reading. That there again is the Greek New Testament published by Tyndale House, published in 2017. Now the evidence for the unique God reading is evenly spread in the available witnesses. But these witnesses are all among the Greek manuscripts of the Alexandrian tradition. The unique son reading, by way of contrast, is widely attested in the East and in the West. In other words, the textual witnesses that say unique son are localized while the unique son reading is far more widespread. It is easy to see how a widespread reading like the unique son could get changed into the unique God reading in one particular location, thus localizing the corrupt change. On the other hand, it is difficult to see how the unique God reading if it was original, is only attested in one particular location, while the supposed corrupt reading, the unique son, is far more widespread. That hypothesis is very difficult to explain. Now, some interpreters will point to the rule when it comes to textual criticism that the more difficult reading is actually to be preferred because... It makes sense that scribes would be more likely to change a difficult reading into something more intelligible. The logic of this is that something that seems to be very, very odd is much more likely to be cleaned up into something more intelligible as opposed to something that is intelligible would be changed into something that doesn't make any sense. It's the rule of the more difficult reading is to be preferred. Now, some scholars note that elsewhere in the Gospel of John, like John 3.16, for example, monoyunis is paired with the Son. And since monoyunis, being the unique Son, is the normal way that the phrase shows up in the fourth Gospel, scribes would 
want to alter a difficult reading in John 1.18, which would say monounis God, the unique God, into conformity with all of the other unique Son readings. The logic of this is that every other reading says unique Son, and so a passage that says unique God would naturally be altered by scribes to conform in harmonization with all the other references that say unique son. That's the argument that is often put forward. However, I would like to share the argument of the Erdman's Critical Commentary, which was published in the last decade. The Erdman's Critical Commentary says that while the general rule of the more difficult reading is to be preferred, this has its limits. The unique God reading, the monounis theos, seems to be so difficult that it actually is impossible. Furthermore, the commentary argues, it is likely that this passage was changed for theological reasons, specifically in light of debates over the Son's subordination. So the Erdman's critical commentary argues that the original reading was the unique son and that this was doctored and corrupted into saying the unique God because of the Christological debates over the identity of Jesus. I think that's a very interesting and compelling argument. I would encourage people, by the way, to acquire the three-volume set of the Erdman's Critical Commentary on the Gospel and Epistles of John. A very good commentary set. For me personally, I don't see why a scribe would downgrade Jesus if John 1.18 originally said the monogenes theos, the unique God. Why would it downgrade Jesus from God down to the Son? Why would you do that? Why would you take away from Jesus? Why would you demote God in service of the authoritative text of the Gospel of John. It just doesn't make any sense. It does make sense, however, in light of the evolving and growing Christology that all historians admit took place in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries, that a reference to the Son would be upgraded by changing it to God. In fact, there are other known textual variants in the New Testament to where the very same thing has taken place. In sum, while it's unlikely to be settled in my lifetime, I think it is more likely that the unique son, the monogenes eos, was the original reading of John 1.18 in that the reading monogenes theos, unique God, was a corruption that came about from the original reading that referred to the Son. Now that we've actually made a case for what the original reading is, we can turn to interpreting the text. If you will recall from my podcast on Monoyunis two weeks ago, we noted that the prologue portrays the human Jesus in terms of this rare adjective, Monoyunis. This adjective 
was formerly used to describe Lady Wisdom, which as a reminder, Lady Wisdom is the personification of God's wise interaction with his creation. You can note Monoyanis being used of Lady Wisdom in Wisdom of Solomon chapter 7 verse 22, and Wisdom of Solomon was written 50 years prior to the Gospel of John. The fourth Gospel argues extensively that Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. You can see this in the prologue, and you can see this in multiple places, in dozens and dozens of places in the narrative of the Gospel of John. So Jesus is wisdom that became flesh. Jesus is wisdom's embodiment. In doing so, the fourth gospel takes this description of Lady Wisdom, who is unique, who is monogenes, and the fourth gospel applies this adjective to Jesus, specifically as the human son. Remember in John 1.14 that when the word became flesh, became human, then it was the unique son from the Father. So, with the statement that Jesus, the unique Son, is in the bosom of the Father, this indicates that currently Jesus is with God. And of course, this makes sense from the perspective that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's been exalted to God's right hand. So in John 1.18b, it says that Jesus, as the unique one, arguably the unique son, he is in the bosom of the Father. He is currently in this close, intimate connection with the Father. That is where Jesus is right now. This Jesus is the unique one, namely the embodiment of wisdom, and now wisdom is in the Father's bosom, which is a way of saying that it is very close to God. One might even say that wisdom embodied in Jesus is now with God, just as we saw in John 1.1, where God's Logos was with God. It is likely that we have an inclusio which is a bookend of literary themes, here in John 1.18 with the original phrase in John 1.1. The Logos, which, by the way, was a synonymous way of describing God's personified wisdom, that Logos was with God in John 1.1, and now wisdom is again with God in God's bosom in John 1.18. Therefore, the reference to Jesus being the monogenes, the unique one in the bosom of the Father, is yet another indicator that the Gospel of John exhibits wisdom Christology. Our third point today is the Son has explained the unseen God. As we turn to what we are calling John 118C, we are at the home stretch. All of the difficult parts of John 118 are behind us. It is all downhill from here. This statement 
quote, he has explained him, end quote, is fairly simple to understand. Jesus has explained the unseen God. And remember that unseen God is the one who was just defined as the Father. No one has seen God, but Jesus is uniquely qualified as the unique Son to explain this unseen God. And in the Greek, we have the verb to exegete, which is translated in English as explained. Jesus has exegeted the unseen God. He has revealed, he has unveiled, he has explained the Father to us. This actually has much to say about Jesus' role in regard to the relationship between the Father and the Son. This regards Jesus as a revelatory figure. Jesus, the embodiment of wisdom, is one who reveals and explains the Father to the world. And this is why Jesus can say that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John 14, verse 9. This is also why prerogatives of the unseen God are shared with Jesus, like the ability to forgive sins, the prerogative to give life, and the prerogative to judge. All of those formally belong to God, and God has shared those with Jesus because Jesus functions as the revealer and the explainer of God. Furthermore, Jesus, as the unique Son, authoritatively explains and exegetes the Father. And so, the Gospel of John portrays Jesus as one who fully represents the Father in every possible way. It's very important that when we look at the exalted and high-status things that are attributed to Jesus, is that Jesus is one who functions as an authorized representative of God, and Jesus is authorized in every possible way. Arguably, this is how titles of God can be shared with Jesus, as we see in John 20, 28. As the authorized revealer and explainer of God, Jesus is able to bear those titles that formerly belong to God. If people want to know God, who is defined as the unseen Father, then they absolutely must interact with and listen to Jesus. Jesus being the unique Son. And this is especially important in light of the polemic in the fourth gospel. Because the fourth gospel has Jesus fighting against the main antagonist, who are, quote-unquote, the Jews. By the end of the first century, the Jews regarded that the way one can actually encounter God was through Moses, or by studying Torah, or maybe by listening to and obeying an authoritative rabbi. The prologue of John argues instead that Jesus, the unique Son, 
explains the Father. So Jesus cannot be ignored nor dismissed. The depiction of the Son, who is distinct from and the revealer of the unseen God, is not a theology of co-equal beings. This is not the unseen God, the Father, being co-equal with the unique Son who reveals the Father. That is not what is being described in John 1.18. Instead, it is the relationship of God, precisely defined as the Father alone, who is explained and exegeted to the world in and through his uniquely authorized Son, the human Jesus. John 1.18 is incompatible with Trinitarian theology. In conclusion, we have observed that John chapter 1 verse 18 is the final verse in the prologue of the fourth gospel. It both defines God and his Son, as well as acts as the closing inclusio to the themes introduced in John 1.1. We first noted that God is defined in John 1.18 as the unseen God, one whom no man has seen with his eyes. However, many within the Gospel of John did in fact see Jesus. So, Jesus is not the unseen God, but rather is one who is distinct from the unseen God. Asserting that no one has ever seen God argues against competing claims that would regard Jesus as just one of many special people. The prologue argues that Jesus is the unique one, the monounice. He is someone in a class all by himself. Second, we observe that John 1.18 had a very important textual variant, with some scholars arguing that the original reading is unique God, monounis theos, while other scholars argue that the unique reading is the unique son, monounis eos. We saw that there were considerable problems with the hypothesis that argued that the unique God was the original reading, in addition to noting how authoritative voices are currently favoring the unique Son reading. By describing Jesus as the monounis, the unique one, the prologue continues to regard Jesus as the embodiment of God's personified wisdom. Wisdom, which was also described as monounis, 50 years prior to the writing of the Gospel of John. As wisdom, who has become flesh, Jesus was crucified, raised, and exalted to heaven, where Jesus is currently in the bosom of the Father. By portraying wisdom as being in the bosom of the Father, the prologue restates what was said in the opening verse that the Logos was with God. Finally, we observe that Jesus authoritatively reveals and exegetes the unseen God. 
This claim introduces a theme that will frequently reappear in the narrative of the fourth gospel. As Jesus functions as the authorized son who represents the father fully. It is Jesus, not Moses, nor the law, that describes and explains God. So those who are interested in God must look to and listen to the authorized unique son, Jesus. Join us next week as we study how God and Jesus were defined in gospel presentations recorded within the New Testament. How did the New Testament authors preach God and Jesus into a world full of idolatry and emperor worship? How did they get people to repent from their belief in many gods to believing in God and Jesus? God and Jesus were defined very specifically, and we'll begin to look at how they were defined in evangelistic presentations within the New Testament in our very next episode. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote these sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for free by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends and by writing an honest review on iTunes. If you feel led to donate, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for listening to us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.